Let Him Go Barefoot is a podcast that dives into all things parenting and education through the lens of mindful awareness. Conversations aim to bring forward patterns, beliefs, and attitudes that shape our expectations and ideas about what it means to raise healthy children. With the blend of science, ancient wisdom, and intuition, we will explore ways to support, nurture, and connect with our growing children while also nurturing and expanding ourselves. I am grateful you are here. Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 24 of the Let Him Go Barefoot podcast. Today, you will hear from Hannah Frankman. Hannah is an insightful, self-directed entrepreneur and the creator of Rebel Educator, an online resource hub with a mission to transform education. In this episode, she walks us through her journey as a studious homeschooled kid, the reasons she decided to skip college, and the choices she made to seek meaningful work and projects that align with her values and goals. We talk about her work at Praxis, how Rebel Educator came to be, and her Twitter account where she shares everything from lists of books for parents and kids to read, to the reasons why parents should consider homeschooling, to the top skills kids need for life. Hannah is determined to empower parents and to help them find better educational options for their children. As stated on her site, rebeleducator.co, your child was built to learn, explore, and create. Our goal is to help unlock that potential. Here is my conversation with Hannah Frankman. Welcome to the podcast, Hannah Frankman. I am so glad that you agreed to come on. I think it's wild that um, it was, what, 2018 possibly, maybe even before then, that we connected over Praxis and questions I had for you regarding Praxis and this program. And then long story short, life happened and it never, we never got together. That was my fault. And so I found you again through Twitter and mutual friends, and I wanted you to come back on to talk to us about your newest adventure, Rebel Educator. Thank you so much. It is great to be here. It feels like this has been a long time coming. I know. Uh, (laughs) It's funny how it comes full circle though. Um, But yeah, it's been, a lot's happened since you and I chatted last over email in 2018 to being here now talking about Rebel Educator. So I'm, I'm excited to get into all of it here. Yes, me too. And, you know, so if you will just kind of give us your backstory, like how did you get here? Um, including, you know, we know you were homeschooled and, you know, what, what did that look like and how did that sort of evolve over the years? And then, um, you know, just kind of the stepping stones to get you, to get you here. Yeah. So I grew up homeschooled first grade through 12th. I went to a Montessori inspired private preschool and kindergarten. So my self-directed education journey started at age six And I, it was a very idyllic childhood, like in retrospect, it was such a, such a beautiful education. Um, I was the, the oldest of two kids. So I was the experiment child. We were (laughs) (laughs) figuring it out from, with me refining based on lessons learned with my younger sister. Uh Um, and there's a six-year age difference between us two, which at times was a really great age gap. At times was a little bit rough, but we were each other's primary playmates, classmates, and companions for mm-hmm. the whole journey, which was really – it was actually really cool because she was she was 
born in my kindergarten year. So she was still, she wasn't even one yet when we started homeschooling. So it was Mm -hmm. really fun to have her to, for us both to be around for each other's journeys for all of it. Um, but yeah, I was homeschooled first through 12th. I had a very Waldorf inspired elementary education. We drew a lot of inspiration and elements from the Waldorf curriculum. So there was a lot of, um, a lot of like drawing lesson books and like nature based and art based education. It was really beautiful. Mm-hmm. And you know, in in elementary school, you don't actually have to spend that much time on academics if you're you're focusing and you're in a self paced environment. So the bulk of my time was just spent playing and working on projects and stuff, which honestly was probably more useful educationally than the actual like formal classroom education Mm -hmm. and then in middle school and high school um we started doing more and more like using internet-based resources and lecture series and things like that my education got a little more formal because we kind of assumed I was on a college track because I really loved academics and I was good at them So we were kind of giving me the foundation that I would need to go to college if that's what I decided to do. And I just loved everything about that. So I watched like a lot of recordings from the teaching company and from Modern Scholar and other like college professor recorded courses like that. Okay. Uh, Went down a lot of really nerdy rabbit holes. My high school experience (laughs) was super self-directed. Like my parents were basically there to make sure I was meeting state standards and finding everything that I needed. But I was doing... Like I was the one who was going and finding the like deciding what I was going to study, finding the resources for it, giving myself my own assignments, my own deadlines, my own grades. Uh, It was like a very autonomous experience, which was really helpful for preparing me for adulthood. Mm -hmm. And then over the course of my high school experience, I started to realize that college wasn't all that I thought it was going to be. And we can get into this more later if this is a topic sure. of interest, but it was a, a four-year journey of sort of having my my dreams about what I, what I thought college was going to be crushed and realizing that I could do everything that I wanted to do on my own for free. And so it didn't make sense to go tens of thousands of dollars into debt for something I didn't need. Mm-hmm. So I was working in high school and I just like kept working full-time after I graduated. And then uh, discovered Praxis, which is a startup apprenticeship program and a college alternative. And I was like, I have to be a part of this. This is so cool. <laughs> so yeah, no, <laughs> sorry to interrupt you. I was no, just going to ask if you would elaborate just a little bit on Praxis, like what it is, yeah. where, it, where it resides, how, how it works. I yeah. Think some families so, been really interested in that. Yeah. It's a, it's very aligned for homeschoolers, especially, so it's a it's a year-long startup apprenticeship program, and it's very explicitly designed to be an alternative to college, especially business school or some other type of co- college track that would lead you into like sort of the standard business world. And basically the way it works is that participants come in, they call them participants, not students, which I love. You're not mm-hmm. just like, you know, sitting there being lectured to, you're actively engaging in the program um so the participants come in and they're they spend three months in a boot camp where they're learning professional skills everything from like soft skills like how to respond to emails well and how to navigate professional conversations and how to manage your time to like more hard skills that you'd use on the job like 
Facebook marketing or writing SEO-based articles or using the types of tools that you need to generate leads in a sales job. And basically the idea is that Praxis is prepping kids to go into like any non-technical role at a early to mid-stage startup. So like sales, marketing, customer success, internal operations, and participants are coming in and they're like choosing projects based on what they're interested in. And then they're doing the type of work that they'd be doing on the job. So at the end of those first three months, they actually have a portfolio of like, if they're interested in marketing, they have a portfolio of marketing projects that they've worked on. They have, um, like they've run some Facebook ads for a side project of their own or a local business and they've written some blog posts and you can go through and you can actually see exactly what it would be like to work with them and exactly how qualified they are. And then they go through a three-month process where Praxis is actually introducing them to different companies and helping them um, like navigate the, the interview process. And then once they land a job, then they go through six months of support and coaching to help them crush those first six months on the job, which is either sometimes it's a full-time offer right out the gate. Sometimes it's an apprenticeship where they work for six months and then transition into a full-time role. It kind of depends on the company. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's a really cool program. And I discovered it because it launched in 2014 and I graduated from high school in 2015. So a couple different people sent it to me my senior year of high school and were like, you should check this out. We think you'd like this. And so I started following them really early on and mm. I was just like, I have to be a part of this somehow. Yeah. <laughs> but I also didn't want to go to, uh, like, I didn't think that I wanted to go apprentice at a, like a startup. I wasn't that interested in business at the time. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I'm just going to wait this out and see what happens because I feel a lot of convictions in both directions about this, which kind of started my uh, ongoing journey of trusting my gut, even when it doesn't really make sense. That's kind of mm-hmm. dictated my whole career up to this point. <laughs> um, but then eventually I landed an internship with them and I was the most stubborn intern they'd ever had. I just like, wouldn't leave. I was like, please give me more projects. I want to be here. And <laughs> eventually I got a full-time job. Um, so I worked with them for a few years, got to work in pretty much all aspects of the the actual program experience which was really fun. I got to do curriculum development. I got to do coaching. I managed the whole coaching team for a while. I actually worked directly with every participant that went through the program between um, January of 2018 and September of 2022, which was a lot of people. Okay. Yeah. Um, So that was a really great experience. And that's really where I was like, okay, I actually really love this whole alternative education thing. I feel like mm-hmm. this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah. Yeah. You kind of, you kind of led yourself there, didn't you? <laughs> All the decisions <laughs> prior to that point. Well, and so I'm sure you were able to see how um, Praxis grew then from that startup in 2014 to 2020. You said you left in 2022. So just this past year. Yeah. I was there for uh, six years to the day, actually. No uh, way which I, I did that on purpose. I was like, I think it's time to go. And it's very poetic if it's exactly six right. years. So like <laughs> this, this makes sense. No, I love um, that. But yeah, it was, I saw a lot of changes over that time. It was a really great crash course in understanding how business works. Like I basically got the whole experience that people who actually go through the program get. I just did it kind of in an unorthodox way because mm-hmm. I worked for Praxis instead. Yeah. Um, but I was, I got to see, you know, how, how a company evolves, how personnel changes occur, how like a company, a 
adapts to real world challenges and pressures, how different types of situations get handled, whether it's like a customer service issue or a curriculum issue or a scaling issue or a marketing numbers are like not up this month and what's going on type of issue. Um, and it was a really small team. So I got to be I got to do a little bit of almost everything, especially early on. Like I got to do sales calls. I got to create marketing content. I got to handle customer service issues. It was a really mm-hmm. great learning experience. And when I came in, um, the team that was like the original team at Praxis was laden with rock stars. There is a, one of the people I worked with is now a partner at 1517 Fund, which is a a spinoff of the Teal Fellowship. Um, for people who aren't familiar, the Teal Fellowship invests in young people. It pays them to drop out of college and go start a startup instead. And there have been some like multi-billion dollar companies that have come out of this. Wow. And the 1517 is run by a couple people who used to run the Teal Fellowship and now they invest in teenagers who are building businesses. That's amazing. Um, so one of the people I worked with is a... Um, He's a partner there. Another, my, my direct boss for years is now a co-host of the Minimalists podcast, which is a huge podcast based out of California. Um, the CEO, the original CEO and founder of Praxis has started other companies. It was just like such an amazing place to be starting a career and learning. I'm infinitely grateful for the experience. Yeah. Yes. Gosh, it's so true. And all the things you were saying that you learned behind the scenes is imperative for people whoever, who, who want to start a company of their own someday, because there's so much that goes into it. It's not just an idea. And then you kind of run with it. Not that you shouldn't take your idea and go with it, but there's so many pieces and parts and you have to learn on the fly and you have to pivot and you have to change. And that's such an amazing experience, no doubt. And so how has that impacted you now? Like what, so did this, while you were at Praxis, did this idea of rebel educator start kind of spinning or was it one of those situations where it's just like, you know, it, it became a natural stepping stone to do something like you're doing now. Um, in hindsight, the path is very clear. Um, I was not aware the path was unfolding until I was like, well, I guess we're starting Rebel Educator yeah. now. <laughs> um, but like looking back, there definitely are things like I, I never thought that I wanted to start a business, honestly. Um, and turns out it's my favorite thing I've done yet Um, Mm -hmm. but I didn't think that was where I was going um I thought I wanted to be working at like playing some role in a high growth startup but not being the founder um mostly because my my perception of companies was very tech centric not even for really a good reason I just sort of like assumed that that's where all the big things happened and I was like I don't think I'm ever gonna have a tech product idea so I don't think this is for me (laughs) Um, but uh I thought I was gonna be doing something like that or I was like really interested in venture capital for a while I was like that might be a really great way to kind of do unto business what I did unto careers with Praxis like I learned how careers worked by working with a bunch of people starting their careers and then I can go work with a bunch of different businesses and learn how business works. Um, And like, I've always wanted to be a writer. And so a lot of the, the pieces of this started to unfold when I was at Praxis. Like I, it was while I was there that I really became aware of just how unusual my homeschooling experience was and just how advantageous it had been for me to have that background and how much it affected 
the trajectory that I was on as an adult and the way I saw the world and the things I was capable of. And I just felt really a really strong compulsion to write about it because mm-hmm. it felt like I had a lot to say. And I was so grateful for the people who'd come before me and written about their experiences that had emboldened my parents to to walk this path. And I wanted to contribute to that. Um, and I became really interested in, in writing for different publications and stuff. And I made a lot of the connections while I was at Praxis that led to like being published and stuff in different places after I left. Um, so that definitely played a role. And then again, like, you know, I met tons of business owners and tons of founders and tons of um, people who are working in different areas of specialty. While I was at Praxis, I built a really powerful network there that I'm also very grateful for. So when I was, you know, when I finally started Rebel Educator, in a lot of ways, it's very inevitable. Like, I think I was always headed here. I just didn't know it. But mm-hmm. I also, like, knew all the people that I needed to talk to to figure out how to do something like this. So I'm, I'm really grateful yeah. for that. Yeah, that's amazing. And it also speaks so, so deeply to what I feel many parents who are on the homeschooling education path, that the idea that you cannot predict the future, you just cannot, you, you can, you can see some ideas, you can see some connections, but being able to really embrace your kids where they are and, and support their interest and be sort of like their coach and their cheerleader and their resource gatherer. And then allowing those individual differences and interests to unfold. And I think, you know, like you said, hindsight, of course, you can see kind of how everything sort of pulled together. But, um, and I'm sure I'll probably feel that way someday when my kids are off, you know, 10 years from now, I'll be like, oh, yeah, all those years of doing that, 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 that has led to that, you know, but I can't <laughs> say for sure that that will happen. Um, it's a matter of being open and and like, okay, with that flexibility and the freedom to pursue those interests. So that's a great, great example. And, you know, so you, you thought about going to college, but you never did. Is that correct? Did I understand that correctly? Yeah. So I, I w- I'm going to answer this question and also tie back to part of what you just said, because I think there's a couple of really important points there. Um, like when I was a kid, a lot of the themes of what I'm doing now started to emerge. Like when I was 12, I started my first business. Mm. Um so I actually like have been an entrepreneur forever. I just like, it took me 14 years to wrap my head around it. Yeah. <laughs> to actually put that label beside your name. <laughs> yeah. But I've been at this for a while. Um, and I always, I always loved writing. I wrote my first quote unquote book when I was, I can't remember if I was four or five. Oh, wow. But I yeah. wrote a, an illustrated <laughs> history of the world um, <laughs> that had uh, – it was very, uh, very basic. I think I just, like, learned about dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was, like, dinosaurs, pilgrims. Um, <laughs> I think ancestors yeah. were in there somewhere. Right. And then there were, like, great-grandparents and grandparents and parents <laughs> and me. And it was, yeah. like, my understanding of what the world was. Right. And it was like all illustrated and phonetically spelled, and I oh, my mom still has it somewhere. I need to f- dig it out someday. You really do. You really do. <laughs> Put it in a museum someday. <laughs> I got a That's lot great. of work to do before that, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, I was, and and then it was like this sort of spiral from there where I I love to read, and so then I would write stories too. So I wrote like illustrated picture books for my sister, and I wrote um, like chapter books that I like 
didn't finish until I was in high school and that I wrote a series of novels and like I was always writing. Mm -hmm. And so like there were a lot of things like I was also always drawing and that I sort of haven't gone back to and haven't really had an interest in. Like there's lots of things that I that didn't amount to anything, but there also are a lot of things that did. And so even though I didn't know what I wanted to do when I graduated from high school, I had a set of interests that were fairly clear cut because I'd spent so much time pursuing what interested me because I had the freedom to do so because I wasn't stuck in a classroom all day and I was in an environment that encouraged it. But I also didn't have like the peer pressure of doing exactly what all my friends were doing. Right. So that also freed me to experiment and explore. So coming out of high school, there were a lot of different career paths that were interesting to me. Um, like I'm just generally a very enthusiastic person. So I think everything sounds cool. So I kind of yeah. wanted to do everything. I know a little bit of, um, yeah, <laughs> I get it. Which, I get you, it. Being an, a writer and an entrepreneur is great. Cause you get to explore a lot of different things, but I like was vaguely interested in a lot of things that required a degree. Like I thought for a while I wanted to be like a, a chiropractor or a sports psychologist or like a marine biologist or something. But none of those things, I wasn't certain enough about any of those that it was worth, like I wasn't ready to commit to it. And then there were a lot of things that I really wanted to do, writing being the primary one that did not require a degree. Mm. And so the more I thought about it, the more I was like, it just, I don't need the college experience as a buy-in for anything that I want to do. And I also, I remember I was, when I was 15, we went to, my mom and I went to a college planning night at a local, our local high school. And I remember here going to the financial aid session and hearing them talk about like the average college debt and the average, like the default rate on college loans and like Mm. how the finances actually work and how you apply for it. And I was just like, oh my gosh, like, I don't know. I'm 15. I don't know very much about finances, but I'm pretty sure this is a terrible financial move to like Mm -hmm. start your adult life by spending Mm -hmm. tens of thousands of dollars you don't have Mm -hmm. on something that you don't need. So that kind of soured me to the whole idea. And then when I was in high school, I was watching all of these lecture series by college professors and if you're not familiar with the great courses, basically it's a company that, that contracts, like they want to produce a series on um, medieval history. So they'll find like the best professor in the country on medieval history and they'll contact them to record a lecture series on medieval history. And it's like a continuing education thing for adults. But I just listened to those for four years for high school. And so I was getting the best professors in the country on every topic. And a lot of these topics were things that you wouldn't even get to until like your third or fourth year of college because you got to get rid of all the gen ed stuff first. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I started to think about like, because there were a couple of professors that I really loved. There was this one guy named Timothy Shutt, who's a professor at Kenyon. And he does lecture series through um, another company called Monarch Scholar on classical literature. So he had a, a lecture series on medieval literature. He had one on the great books. And I just adored his stuff. And I was like, it would be amazing to go to Kenyon College and get to learn from him. But the reality of actually the likelihood of building a relationship with him was infinitesimal because he's a famous professor. So his lecture halls are packed full of hundreds of students. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's like teacher's aides and stuff half the time, assistant professors. And it just, 
and, and then I'm, you know, getting whoever else they have in all their other departments. Like I'm not getting the best professors and all the other topics that I like mm-hmm. from other schools. Like it just felt like a step backwards. Right. And it step, right. felt like a step backwards from designing my entire experience up to that point. So it also didn't feel like it made any sense like from an actual experiential standpoint, like I, I wanted college to be a place where I would find a whole bunch of other people who are super nerdy like me, who are interested in all the things that I was interested in, where I could have, you know, 2 a.m. philosophical debates about <laughs> like how the Iliad impacted the Aeneid, impacted Shakespeare, and how we're going to like apply that to writing the next great American novel or something like that. Um and that just like was not the reality. Mm-hmm. So I was I was really sad about it. I wish the college that I envisioned existed. I think there are some that are close. I think Hillsdale is a pretty great school. Um, there's a little tiny classics college called St. John's College that I, I know some people who graduated from there. It sounds amazing. It was not worth the price for there being no, no, uh, you know strategic reason to have a, a, yeah, a liberal you. arts right. degree in the great books um so it just like it, it just didn't make sense for me um yeah. so I decided to do a four-year experiment and I was like I'm gonna see how far I can get because everybody's telling me I'm gonna ruin my life by not going to college I'm gonna see how far I can get in four years instead of being in college and then you know if I've ruined my life I can always go back well, and I, I think that that's important to put a pin in because that's where a lot of people start having that fear. Yes. If you don't do this, then if this, then that, you know, it's, it's an automatic because the, the path has been created, you know, like this is what you do people. And if you do these things, it's guaranteed, but we know it's not true. We, <laughs> that's not the reality. Um, and there's also the push and the rush. It's like, if you do this to this date, then this age now is time you pivot to this part. And where I have seen the the changes over because we've been homeschooling now for 16 years and I was a I had a special education degree mm-hmm. was in the schools and tutored and wrote curriculum and worked for private schools so I had all those years in the buildings and then didn't think I was going to homeschool and then <laughs> my kids came along and I was like huh it seems very interesting this is like an idea and one thing led to another and all that to say what I had to break down myself was this idea that it had to be done at a certain time. And so what I talk to parents about now is that where's the rush? Who created this emergency that you have to do it by a certain date? And I feel like if everybody could take a collective deep breath and just relax, we would have so much more of people reaching their potential and being able to find those pathways that really speak to them and match their interest. And, and like you said, even explore, you know, you don't have to make a decision like at 15, 16, 17. I mean, who really knows exactly what they're going to do from that age on? And, and it's, it takes a very special, it's a very unique individual that does. And I'm not saying they don't exist, but I think generally speaking, we all need to get out in the world and, you know, see what it's like to get up every day, to go to a job where people depend on you and you contribute to the team and actually are somehow steering the ship in a sort of in a way that that impacts you directly and I love that you had those experiences and that they connected together to get you to a place now where you feel like you have that experience behind you you know yeah. and now and then you've created this team of people you've created all these connections um and I just think it's if there's a template to choose I like your template <laughs> <laughs> well it's it's hard because it's not a 
it's not an obvious template. Mm-hmm. Like to the out, like I was always trusting my intuition. I was following my interests. I was letting my curiosity guide me. And I'm a very strong advocate for that because usually the things that you're curious about are relatively recurring or at least related. Mm-hmm. So if you keep following those things, eventually they'll lead you to things that you can also make money doing and that are, you know, career moves that you want to spend time doing. But it's it's a harder thing to trust than this external model that that everyone's uh, following together. There's sort of this – I don't even know exactly what to call it. It's the collective um, sort of de- – de- <laughs> yeah, de- de- deferral of responsibility. Yeah. Like it's not quite – it's not – I, I keep wanting to call it nihilism and that's not right. Although the, the outcome's a little nihilistic, but it's yeah. like, we're all, we're all walking towards this cliff together. Mm-hmm. So if we all fall off, at least like my neighbor's not going to think I'm weird that I fell off because they're sitting at the bottom in the rubble too. Exactly. Of, yes. Yes. Like there's, it, it's a weird phenomenon where there's this safety in the collective. So we just keep doing the things that we're supposed to do, but it's not a very well examined set of, choices and it's not like I think about this a lot because I was a really academic kid and if I had had a different set of parents um I probably would have been more um just sort of accepting of the college route because you know you you need some form of support to be encouraging you to think outside the box. And if I hadn't had that, I probably just would have defaulted to it. And I loved academics so much. Like there's a very good chance that I would have gone and like gotten a PhD or something because I just loved school and I loved learning and I was good at it. So you keep doing what you're good at. But like, what, what would I have done with that? Where would I have ended up and what opportunities would I have missed that have Mm -hmm. been very fulfilling and made me very happy um, because of that. And I think there's, you know, I, I talk to people who've gone to they've gone through the whole system all the way through and then they're kind of like, well, that was sort of a waste of time. Like I learned a lot, especially that that's not what I should have done and what I wanted to do. But like it's 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 hard, but you really need to. I, I think if you want to really tap into your potential and, and this is very sweeping advice, I don't think this applies to every child or every person. But generally speaking, like you really have to trust the kind of the mystery of your own evolution um, and your own interests and and kind of trust the emergence over time of a pattern because usually there is one, but you have to give it enough space for it to to show up and make itself obvious. Oh, I love that. Trust the mystery of your own evolution because that is that is so true. I mean, there's no there's just no way we can we can know exactly. I mean, I. I can't, like, looking back at myself 20 years ago, I never would have thought I'd be sitting here having this little podcast conversation with Hannah Frankman, you know? I mean, who, (laughs) like, that's just not, that was not on my radar 20 years ago. And then I think about Mm -hmm. my kids now, and um, I would say what, what I feel like could be agreed upon is that the years between 16 to 22, maybe, maybe 16 to 20, or those are the years where where our children need to be out exploring the world and interacting with a variety of different things, whether that's different little jobs, hobbies, um, you know, helping in, in charity if that's what they're interested in or volunteer work so that they 
can experience themselves in different settings. So how do you really know how you handle life if you're not handling life? Um, and I just, I think that if we, if we could say together, all of us, I think everybody has kids best interests at heart. I think kids, you know, teachers, educators, even administrators, they want to create a space for people to thrive. But like you said, it's like, they've all done it for so long. It's like, it's too big to change. We've been doing this forever. So I kind of envision like a, <laughs> a huge mass of people running like to that cliff and you see all these people darting off to the side. Those are all the, that's all of us. We're like, we're going to leave, we're going to leave this pack because I see where it's headed and I'm not okay with that. So, um, so how did, so let's, I guess let's just dive into the rebel educator. If, if that's all right with you, we'll go ahead and just yeah. talk about what it is and how you are utilizing that platform. So first of all, did you start it, um, as a site or did you start it as a Twitter handle and then it evolved? Yeah. So Twitter was the thing I started working on first. The site came fairly soon after. So we're, let me, let me back up and give a little bit of context actually. Um, so rebel educator is like, basically we're trying to be the, the first resource that parents find when they start searching, what can I do with my kid besides public school? Because this is not working. Um, like we have a very broad array of people in our audience. We have a lot of people who are veteran homeschooling parents, people who have their kids in alternative schools, people who have their kids in a lot of different things, people who grew up homeschooled themselves, um, teachers who are really frustrated by the system and trying mm. to get out or building something new. Um, but like the the people that we can be most helpful to, I think, are those people who are like there's there's got to be something else out there. Mm-hmm. Um we want them to be able to find us and then like use us as a jumping off point to go find everything else that's out there because there is a lot in the education space. There's a lot of, there are a lot of schools, tons of homeschool curricula, um, tons of amazing commentators like yourself who are creating content and providing resources and support. And it's just, it can be really hard to find all of it. Like Mm -hmm. you kind of, I feel like a lot of the best commentators that I've found and the best resources that I found, I sort of stumbled on by accident or I got really lucky and I happened to know somebody who was following them or knew them and was like, Hey, you should check this out. But until you're kind of on the inside of the community, it can be very lonely Mm. to be even questioning the system, let alone doing something different. Right. So it's like we want to be a beacon for those people and we also want to be a very practical resource where you can look up like how do I like find an alternative school for my kid and we have articles on actually like the process of finding a school and resources on where to start but also like how do you choose a school? Mm-hmm. Um, what are creative ways to like look for funding for your edu- your child's education? Because there are more resources out there than people think there are. Um, what are different ways to like if none of the schools in your area seem like a good fit? Here's how to like think about online school and whether or not that's a good fit for your kid or maybe homeschooling. Like maybe you've always written it off, but it's actually a more viable option than you thought it was. Mm. And like here's how to think about that. Uh, Maybe you are homeschooling your kid, but you're having a really hard time motivating them to do actual schoolwork. And here's how to think about like maybe they need a detox period because they were in public school and they just need to like 
hard reboot their mm-hmm. their educate their their internal systems um here's how to think about um like maybe they're they're not motivated because the curriculum isn't actually tailored around their interests maybe it's not useful to them mm-hmm. um or maybe they just need some like you know refreshing content that's like game based or something to like reignite their interest mm-hmm. so like here are different things you can think about like we just want to to create all these different rabbit trails and interconnected webs of information um so we're on four platforms right now i actually don't know when this episode is getting live so when people hear this we might just be on three um we're in the process of, of launching the fourth right now so we have our website which is rebeleducator.co and that's where we're like that's probably the biggest place that we're trying to be. When you search something, you find us because, you know, that's that's the easiest place to optimize for for Google search rankings. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we're super active on Twitter, which is like the most community-centric part of what we're doing. Um, I'm the one running the Twitter account, so I'm talking to people all day, every day there. Okay. And then we have a Substack newsletter, um, which goes out every Tuesday um and then we're in the process right now of launching a podcast so we're going to be facilitating um weekly long-form conversations about all of this stuff where we can like really go in depth on different people's stories and experiences and like you know if somebody's building a school here's how they're doing it here's the why here's the process all of those fun things so we're really just like trying to build um as comprehensive as we can get of an amalgam of content and then we're trying to, you know, like, we're very pro. There are lots of different ways to educate your kid, and there is not a one-size-fits-all answer, and that is one of the biggest problems about education in America and around the world is that we assume there is one, mm-hmm. and it's a very, very damaging assumption. To all, There are a lot of kids that just get, like, chewed up as collateral damage because of this. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. like, there's not one answer. We're not here to say, like, every kid should go to an Acton Academy or every kid should be in a Montessori school. Um, like, we're just – aggregating resources and then giving people a jumping off point to everything else that's out there so they can mm-hmm. go find podcasts like yours and different schools online like synthesis or sora schools or the socratic experience or something like that where they can find you know what's what's going to be a good fit for their kids um we want parents to come feeling confused and walk away feeling empowered like oh we, we maybe maybe we can actually do this yes that's so great wow yeah, so you know, you've got the you've got the um essays and the blog posts, but you've also got links to places and where they can spend time just learning yeah. and making connections and talking to people, I would imagine too. So once you have a connection to somebody, do, can people contact you directly through your site or anybody yes. who's working with you? Okay, so how does that work? Yes. So <laughs> we have a contact form on the website Um, we don't really like advertise it that much, but people find it pretty regularly, which is very cool. So you can get in touch with me there. Um, and then I get a lot of DMS on Twitter too. So anybody who's active on Twitter, feel free to send me a message also. Um, I also have a personal Twitter at Hannah Frankman, which is also like, I'm I'm on both all day. So (laughs) either one is fine. Um, But I I get a lot of messages there too from people, which is also really cool. And then the the best part is that people are interacting with each other. Yeah. So I'll post a lot of tweets that are very like intended to drive conversation. I've been doing this a lot more over the past month or so where I'll ask a question and then people will start interacting with each other in the comments. And it's really fun to see 
people finding each other who have similar experiences or similar challenges or similar questions or pain points. Um, yeah. Like finding each other and, and talking to each other. I feel like in some ways that's that's maybe the most important part of what we're doing. Mm-hmm. That is one aspect of Twitter I really do like is the fact that there can be that conversation piece and people do tend to find each other like that. I mean, I know Instagram can be that way as well, but Instagram doesn't seem to encourage the conversation as much as like a Twitter feed would. Yeah. Twitter is very built for conversation, which is part of why I love it so much. I've been spending time on there for years and I've met some of the most amazing mentors and friends and support people in my network from Twitter. I'm a huge advocate for it. I think that that it should be um, in encouraged part of most young adults experiences if they're doing things that like people who are interested in that are hanging out on Twitter like it's it's not for everybody because there aren't communities for everything but sure. it's amazing yeah. and it really lends itself to having conversations which is so important for what we're doing partly because like I have a lot of ideas about what I think is important <laughs> to talk about with education. I clearly have opinions. Yeah. Um, but like I also want to know what people actually are looking for and what challenges they're running into. And sometimes I'll have an opinion that's like, you know, I feel very strongly about this thing from my experience, but then other people will like come in and chime in with their own experiences that are very different. I'm like, okay, this is actually like, I'm going to refine how I'm talking about this because mm-hmm. like, I think my point still stands, but not in the way that I like am saying it or maybe. maybe it doesn't stand at all mm-hmm. and so that that evolution is so important for being like if I truly want to be a steward of edu- of alternative education and supporting kids um I, I need to make sure that my my ideas and opinions can can pass the test of like crowdsourcing them mm-hmm. so <laughs> well and I do like that part of it is that you know you have an idea you toss it out there and maybe you come at it from an angle and a perspective that you know you felt like was pretty sure and then somebody comes up and challenges you and you think okay wait a minute I didn't think about that piece because I'm not in that world or I'm I'm, I'm not a mom yet or I don't you know so it's like all these little parts and pieces that can be like you said refined because that's the point is to learn mm-hmm. and grow together um, but then again, of course, there's stuff that people challenge you on. It's like, well, that's your opinion. You know, it's not necessarily a challenge to make me change my mind. It's more like, well, that's the way you see it. That's not the way I see it. <laughs> and that's okay, too. Um, speaking of your tweets, I have shared quite a few of them on my page, and they always get really good responses. Um, so I'm going to I'm gonna share the one um, that I um, posted a little while back. And I, I personally love this one because, you know, as a a uh, former educator and person in the schools for quite some time. This, I felt like, summed it up pretty well. Um, it says, school has education all backward. It should be kids' interest over bureaucrats' preferences. It should be natural pacing over grade-level standards. Hands-on over textbook theory. Instead, we're crushing kids' natural spirit by forcing them into cinder block boxes where they don't belong. <laughs> Talk about hard-hitting. you know and so how when you when you post things like that now I don't spend a ton of time reading comments and things on Twitter but so in situations like that would you say like when you kind of just like lay it out there do -hmm. you get a pretty good response from people more positively do you get people thinking like really or you know I mean is this do you notice that all of a sudden you'll get a lot more 
DM activity because people are feeling kind of the way you laid it out, but weren't quite sure how to word it? Or is it just sort of a mixture? It's definitely a mixture. Um, It can be kind of fun to go back through old tweets and see, and also like in real time when you tweet something to see what the responses are, because some generate a lot of pushback Mm -hmm. and some generate a lot of support. And it's just really interesting to, to watch that unfolds because sometimes it's a real surprise like I've tweeted things that I thought is like you know I'm gonna tweet this because I'm thinking about it but I don't think anybody's really gonna care that much and then it'll get like 2,000 likes yeah like, okay that one <laughs> that one hit a nerve <laughs> um, yeah and sometimes I'll tweet stuff that I'm like this is a really important point and I like really thought about how I'm framing it and it gets like 90 likes yes <laughs> right what is that Twitter Twitter <laughs> Twitter is a she's a fickle mistress um she <laughs> She she has her moods and she is hard to predict, but that's part of the fun, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. But yeah, I get so – it's interesting. I definitely get more support comments than I get – than I get pushback. Um, definitely depends on the topic, though, and it also depends on, like, who picks up the tweet and shares it. Mm. So – Like if something's mostly getting seen by my existing audience, like they generally agree with me and that's why they're following me. Sure. Um, And I actually like if somebody will free – like when I get comments about – like I agree with most of your takes, but I really disagree with this one and this is why. Like I I actually put a lot of weight on those comments because Mm -hmm. like I I find those those nuanced differences in opinion to be very – like maybe I need to re-examine this too. I'm not necessarily going to come out in a different place, but I want to make sure that I've considered this mm-hmm. thoroughly. Well, and it's a good but, faith comment. It's not mm-hmm, I need to be exactly. you down because you disagreed with me. It's more like, oh, uh, how about this? You know, and we're not <laughs> going to all agree on everything. It's just impossible. So anybody who thinks that is just it hasn't been in the world. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you got to get out there, exactly. interact with a bunch of people, and you'll realize. We might have more in common than we than we want to believe, but um, <laughs> so do you draw your inspiration then from just like you said, just day to day life? I mean, you're just kind of sitting around and or reading a book, or maybe had a conversation with somebody, and you're thinking, "All right, I need to create a tweet out of this." Yeah, I mean, it's sort of it's a very integrated process because I'm doing a lot of other things besides Twitter throughout my day. Like, I have a there's a team of writers who are contributing to Rebel Educator who are all amazingly talented, incredibly smart people. I feel so lucky to be working with them and that they want to be a part of building this. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll often have very, very inspired in-depth conversations that will lead to things. Um, doing podcast interviews is always great fodder for tweets. Somebody will ask me a question or I'll ask someone a question and then the answer will take me somewhere that I hadn't really gone before. And I'm like, Ooh, this is good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, sometimes, um, like reading, if I'm if I'm feeling really dry in terms of inspiration, reading is a good, um, like I'll I'll go read a book about education and that will lead to a whole bunch of ideas. But often, I feel like the best ideas just come from becoming more of an observer of my own life mm. and noticing where and how these points of dissonance in like how we're educated, how we live, what we're taught to believe versus what's actually helpful to believe, like all the different things emerge. Um, and then you're like, I follow a bunch of other people who are talking about education on Twitter. So 
that's also great. Like somebody will say something, I'll be like, oh, that reminds me of this other thing that I don't think I've ever talked about, but is really important. But then also like Twitter is a very, it's, it's an art and a science. Mm. So the art form is like you have an idea and then you wordsmith it so that it hits and then you post it. Um, the science though is seeing like, okay, what are the actual, what are the topics that people are responding to and the things that people seem interested in? Because that's really useful data, not just from like, you know, trying to write more heavy hitting tweets so you grow more, obviously, so you can reach more people, but also like it tells you what your audience wants and what people are hungry for and what topics are interesting. And that's really important information. So I'll spend a lot of time just like noticing, okay, over the past few months, what have I talked about that's really resonated with people? And then how can I like expand on that? So sometimes I'll ask a question and then people will respond with different thoughts and I'll get in a conversation with someone and that will lead to ideas. I just feel like there's an infinite amount of things to talk about with this Mm -hmm. and I could do this for years and still not say all of the things that need to be said. (laughs) So it's less that the content generation is a problem and more that it's like making sure I'm saying it well in a way that people understand and care enough about to like stop and think about or engage with. Mm-hmm. When you said you've, you've got educators in your audience too, have you, have there been some surprises from, from educators or are you hearing, so you have an intuition about what's going on in the world and you're, are yeah. you, are you finding that your intuition is correct and what you're, what you're seeing and thinking that's happening in the public school arena is, is accurate? That's a really interesting question. So I get teachers are kind of a mixed bag in terms of response. Um, Like I'll get some like (laughs) once in a while, I'll get somebody who will just like get in in the rebel educator orbit for a while. And they'll like they're they're not a teacher, but they'll like just like comment and disagree on everything that I post. And I love the pushback partly Mm -hmm. because it makes me think and also partly because I take it as a green flag. It's like, okay, if I'm irritating some people, (laughs) it means I'm doing something right. If no one is angry about what I'm saying, I am clearly not saying this harshly enough. Um, Like I'm clearly not making my point. But the teachers are really interesting because like I definitely get pushback from some people. I'll get – I got a ton of pushback. I wrote – I posted a question – maybe a month ago about something along the lines of like, what is the biggest thing that you wish you'd learned in school that school didn't teach you? Mm. And that started getting shared through teacher circles. And I got a ton of, ton of pushback. Um, Like there were, there were a couple people who were going through and commenting on like, everybody's responses with like we do teach that in school like somebody was like Mm. I wish I learned taxes and like we do teach that in school and somebody's like I wish I'd learned like how to manage my finances and it's like we do teach that in the school which I thought was really interesting because in some ways it almost reaffirms the point it's like well if you're teaching this in school but everybody feels like they're coming out and not have like they haven't learned it Mm -hmm. at least not adequately enough to to use this with proficiency in the real world like maybe that's part of the problem here that Mm -hmm. we need to talk about yeah but like some some educator I forget who he was but he was like a teacher who had a fairly sizable following retweeted with something along the lines of like this is the most like idiotic (laughs) thread I've ever seen or something like that and I was just like yes 
<laughs> like I'm, I'm striking nerves. It's good. Uh-huh. Like I'm, I'm, I'm like conversation is happening. You might not agree with me, but at least you will have thought about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I and think that's a win. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I mean, I, I think it's kind of human nature to defend what it is that you've made a decision to do. Um, yeah. And I know as an educator too, I mean, when I was working in the classrooms and the, I didn't, I mean, of course I saw problems, but I also wanted to be there. And so yeah. I'm going to defend my position to be there. But as I got older, was in there longer and then left, looking back, it's not even about the individual teachers as much as it is just about the system. I mean, the, the way it's set up. I mean, if we had the flexibility and the freedom to do the things that we wanted to do, mm-hmm. things could have looked so different. And um, And I think, you know, I mean, the self-directed education circles tend to talk about learning if you want to compare models, think about the public library versus the school. Mm-hmm. You know, self-directed education is the public library in, in the <laughs> way that we would want learning to really be. You go in, you have all the choices in front of you, you have people available to help you, you can break have breakout sessions, you can um, organize groups to gather there, you can come to a talk, you can watch videos. I mean, there's just so many choices. And so and we know how successful that is. You know, our society really likes our public libraries. So how can we possibly pivot in, in that way and you utilize that sort of idea with with education in general, um, which is why I do believe we're seeing so many people breaking out and, and yeah. doing things differently because they realize- Teachers too. Yeah, exactly. Teachers too. I definitely, I get a lot of- Like I get the full spectrum of people. I get the teachers who think that I'm just like full of it and that all of my criticisms are, are completely unfounded and they want to know if I've ever been in a classroom or have any idea, like I've ever worked with a child. Mm. Um, And then there are also a lot of teachers who are incredibly, like they agree with every single point that I make and they will comment and tell me. And it's a whole spectrum of all the way from people who've like left the system altogether to people who are in the system, but like trying to figure out how do we, like we know these problems exist. We want to be working with kids. Like this is, we want to help. How can we circumvent some of the nonsense that's, that's bogging us down? And I think these are really important distinctions to make because I am, I am super pro teacher. Mm -hmm. Like I think that it's like none of this is the teacher's fault at all. There is like a, a systemic failure that is just stifling everything about how learning is supposed to work and also the freedom of what teachers are able to do. And like that's the problem and that's what I'm fighting against. And I think that most teachers are very well-intentioned mm-hmm. yeah. and are just like stuck in a broken system to begin with. Um, and I don't think that – what I say always necessarily comes across that way, but that is certainly the intent behind it. Um, when I say it doesn't come across that way, I mean like, you know, not everybody who's reading what I'm saying is necessarily inferring that, mm-hmm. um, but it's certainly the intention. Yeah. And it's really interesting to talk to to teachers who are, you know, working on find, creating other options. One of the best conversations I've had since starting Rebel Educator, this was only a few months after we launched. This happened over the summer. Um, somebody DM'd me on Twitter and he said, hey, I just wanted to let you know that I've been a public school teacher for years and I just quit my job mm. and I'm working on starting a self-directed learning center in the town where I live. 
and like I'm working on recruiting homeschooled families and other people to like, you know, get this thing off the ground. And I just wanted you to know that like reading your content, I love everything that you're posting and it like really resonates and it's been like part of what's helped me, um, you know, like wrap my head around what I want to do next. Mm, that's wonderful. And I was just like, you know, just that makes it worth it. Mm-hmm. Like if I can even play a tiny role in making somebody feel like they're not alone. Yeah. Take on a path like that. It's, you know, that's. That's what it's all about. Absolutely. So there are a lot of teachers out there like that who are leaving the system and and trying to start micro schools and alternative schools and join other programs and do tutoring and all kinds of stuff. And when people talk about the teacher shortage, it's not just teachers who aren't happy with the pay. It's also a lot of teachers who want to be helping kids and feel like the system is crushing their ability to do that, not supporting it. Right. Well, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to highlight another one of your tweets that I pulled off, which was... Um, how many kids get told don't read ahead? What a horrible <laughs> thing to teach children that they should rein in their curiosity and not run with it. Think of how much human potential is being wasted by kids being taught not to chase their interest. And that one really hit me because as a tutor, one of the things that happened with the little boy I started working with, this was years ago, he started working with him in fifth grade. And, um, He came to see me once a week for many years, even to the point where I was like, I don't think I need to see him anymore. But his mom was like, no, he's coming. And and, and I mean, he was, he was like, you know, my third child and he loved to read as a fifth grader. And this kid was reading huge books, but he was getting in trouble all the time because he was reading. (laughs) And I was like, I just wanted to go into the school and be like, do you realize what you're doing here? (laughs) This is a child who is reading like a large book and he's involved and he's in it. But now he's getting in trouble. Like you're just so much of a mixed message there. Mm -hmm. But then you take the book away and say, no, this is more important because I'm giving it to you. You don't ask the questions. You don't pick the things. It comes from me. And that disconnect and that, you know, uh, just complete disregard of the person that you say you're there to help is why we are seeing, I think, just constant pushback and just a a dissolution of that whole idea of what we created or what was created such a long time ago. And again, of course, I mean, you know, kids carry around in their pocket something that's more powerful than anything we've ever had, you know, computer wise. And you, you expect them to sit and listen to lecture after lecture after lecture when everything that you're teaching them, they could have found out in five minutes. Yeah. And, and, and I know a lot of families during the pandemic, for sure started realizing what was going on daily and Mm -hmm. how much time was being wasted. So I wondered if you noticed any like differences or big changes during the pandemic. Yeah, I think the pandemic was a huge inflection point for the evolution of education. There've been, there've been a couple. Um, So if you think about the the world's readiness for alternatives, like 20 years ago, what's happening now wasn't really quite possible yet mm-hmm. because it just the, – the tools weren't there to create the, the mass exodus that we're now seeing. Like it was a lot harder to homeschool when you had to go like, I don't know, do a – homeschool fair in your state and buy curriculum and try to figure figure out where the local communities were I mean people were doing it but it was you didn't have the ease of like you can sit on your couch and type into your phone Mm -hmm. you know 
algebra videos and be like, here, watch this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, it's not, yeah. it's very different. We had Yahoo groups. Um, I was back in the Yahoo group days. Yeah. If there, there were, there were, my mom was too. There were things. <laughs> yeah. But it was, it was not the proliferation that there is now. Exactly. And so expansion of the internet and the, the proliferation of it just being everywhere made it that was a huge shift and then us like learning how to use the internet as an educational resource and as a mechanism for sharing information effectively has been a huge a huge evolution and then like there was a shift that started around 2008 with people moving out of the public school system and like more private schools starting to emerge and I haven't spoken to anyone who knows for sure like what drove that um, I don't know if there is a definitive answer for why a shift started there, but there was some, like the trend began. Okay. But it was still very, it was a, a sparsely populated movement mm-hmm. because it's, it's hard. Um, and a lot of people just like thought they couldn't, they thought the public schools were good enough and they thought homeschooling their kids was just inconceivable Mm. and then the pandemic happened and everyone had their kid at home which just like shattered all of the perceptions around like well I couldn't stand to have my kid home all day well now you do and it's actually not so bad Mm -hmm. but also people saw what was happening in the classroom because zoom school came home and a lot of people were really horrified by what they saw yeah and so that led to a a major exodus of the system and it, you know, it's it's something that hasn't stopped just because the pandemic is relatively over. And in most states, people are like back in school and it's like nothing's nothing ever happened. A lot of kids have not gone back. Yeah. Um, and a lot of teachers haven't wanted to go back to because it just like shifted everybody's perception dramatically of what was possible. Right. And then – you know, like a lot of parents are working from home now too, and they weren't before. It also really accelerated the the remote work movement, which enables parents to, you know, if you're home all day, you can have your kid in online school. Mm-hmm. And you know, they couldn't they couldn't do that before. So I think everything that's happened over the past three years was wow. It's crazy that it's been almost three I know, years, right? I know. <laughs> How did that happen? It's crazy. Um, like everything that's happened was going to happen anyway, I think, but it's happened much faster than it was set to before this. And I think it's a huge silver lining of the pandemic to be perfectly honest, because I think the, the impact of having this many kids not in the public school system is going to be a huge, huge net positive on so many levels. And I don't know if it would have been possible without it. You know, that's interesting that you, you pulled that point out because I, I've felt that way too. I've wondered when you take away a lot of people think the exodus is bad. It's going to break the schools down. It's going to make it so that the people, Good. right? <laughs> it's going to make it so that people that are there are going to suffer more. Um, but I, I think of it in a couple of ways. Well, at first, I've also heard some conversation of people saying like, this is obviously a huge big red flag that, that parents are asking for something different. Our society has shifted. It's changing. You know, information is available. People can can learn in in ways that we never had before and we can't keep doing the same thing and expecting different results you know i mean so mm-hmm. it it has been interesting to 
to hear that kind of chatter start on top of the fact that um, Education Week posted an article at the beginning of November that said uh, more than a million uh, enrollment, public school enrollment is down more than a million. Yeah, I think from the other estimates that I've seen, that seems really low. Like it's down, it's the, the numbers are crazy. Like it's down tens of thousands in, I don't remember the exact number, but like New York City is down tens of thousands of students. And it makes sense because like people are leaving New York, but even in places like, you know, I'm in Austin and public school enrollment is down in Austin too. I want to say it's down by like 8,000 students or something this year. And that's with the enormous population influx that's happening here. Like there are way more kids here than there were two years ago, three years ago when everybody started relocating because of the pandemic and the enrollment is still down. Yeah. And I heard that this, I think it was the Seattle school districts that they normally had like, I want to say like 8,000 kids normally would enroll for kindergarten, six to eight or something. And it was like a third of that. I mean, it was insane. The numbers, I was like, what in the, wow. You know, so it's, uh, and again, like you, like you said, it could be that people have just left. They're just like, we're leaving the city or, you know, be interesting to see those numbers now. So the last thing I wanted to ask you, if it's all right with you, yeah. is, um, so I posted, like I said, I, um, some stuff on my page and I asked if anybody had any questions for you. And I do feel like we've probably addressed them, but um, I'm just going to look really quickly. So yeah, if we have anything good, I'm, I'm happy to touch on those too. Okay. Okay. So one was like, I wanted to know if she had any siblings and if they all feel similarly about how they were raised and or how their paths have gone. That's a great question. So I have one younger sister. Um, She's six years younger than me. So she's 20 right now. So still in the very early stages of being out of high school. Um, I mean, like both of us were voluntarily homeschooled the whole way through. We could have gone to school if we wanted to. It was never encouraged, but my Mm -hmm. parents weren't going to say like, you absolutely may not either. Yeah. And she chose to stay homeschooled all the way through. And she... She's working full-time now um, for a company where everybody loves her um, and she's, you know, punching way above her her weight as a 20-year-old. Um, so she, she was a very different kid than I was. Like I was really academic. She was much more like she liked hands-on stuff. She started working much younger than I did mm. and she really loved like physical labor and like hands-on stuff. So we had very different paths, but being homeschooled for her, like, I don't want to speak too much for her, but, you know, from, from my observation of her story, she, you know, being homeschooled allowed her to go and work and do the types of things that she wanted to do that, like, helped her learn and prepare for, you know, working full time as, as a young adult. So mm-hmm. It was a very, it was in the same way that my experience was tailored to my interests and journey. Her experience was tailored to her interests and journey. But, um, you know, I think I've never heard her say anything other than, you know, express anything other than happiness about her homeschool experience. Mm-hmm. That's great. Well, and I'm glad you brought up that point too about the fact that, you know, you're so different in the way that you approach things because that's something I impress a lot too with parents. It's like, just because they're in the same family does not mean they will have the same interests or like the same things or, you know, interact with the world in the same way. And, you know, you explaining how things were for you. A lot of people, well, not a lot of people, I think maybe early on when people thought about a homeschooler, they thought about 
somebody like Hannah, who was like, yes. I'm going to learn everything and do it all by <laughs> myself and, you know, keep learning, learning, learning and, and, and sign up for classes and things like that. And so when people do decide to homeschool and that's not what happens, they feel like they're doing something wrong. Yeah. And That's all of a sudden a really they're like, important point. oh, wait a minute. They're not signing up for classes. They're not self-directed. You know, they think self-directed equals, I'm going to learn this philosophy right now and have conversations with people till 2 a.m., <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and it's, and it's not that that's, that's the case. It's, um, yeah. you know, so I, I experienced that of course with my own children and the differences that they have and the way that they want to express themselves, um, and like you said, somebody's very good with their hands or they're very artistic or, you know, they're very expressive, then they might not be the type that's going to say, yeah, sign me up for that class. I want to sit there and do that for the next, you know, six weeks. They would rather poke their eyeballs out. Yeah. <laughs> no, and I'm that's a really, that. it's a really important point because my sister, like she was a very responsible student. So when she was younger, my mom had to twist her arm to get her, like she didn't want to, she was a very reluctant reader early on. She was a, like, if you were measuring her against where I was at the same age, you'd be like, okay, this is not like working in the same way that like, mm -hmm. like something, something looks off if you're measuring by like the, the traditional like public school standards. But my sister, like, I think she owns more books than I do, which is saying something because I own a ridiculous yeah. <laughs> amount of books and she reads all the time. <laughs> and she, like, she reads very different things than I do, but she's extremely eloquent and articulate and has, you know, a, a, she's, she's a great reader. Um, and she, so like she, she got there. She was a very responsible student in high school. She would like, you know, she didn't love the work the way I did, but she would like, she was very diligent. I mean, she, I think she was more disciplined than I was honestly about doing mm. the work too. She was like a very different, very different student, but she like really what she wanted to do was be working on farms. And she like, you know, mm -hmm. landed work with the neighbor's miniature horse farm and they called her her sta their stable manager when she was like 12. Wow. And she was, she yeah. was doing all of these things that were preparing her for the life that she wanted to be living. And I think it's, it's so important to honor that in your kids and the way that it uniquely expresses in each child. Like they're not necessarily going to show up in the way that you expect a homeschooler to show up. And they're not necessarily mm -hmm. going to, you know, think that the things that you think are more important are actually the most important things for them. And that's like, if, if, if it's, if you're, they're truly going to get the benefit of what homeschooling can allow them, you have to give them space to find their path. And for that to be the case, because that's where like, you want them to live a life that's tailored to them and that's mm -hmm. a good fit for them. And if yeah. you want that, you have to trust their process in getting there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's such great advice. And I've seen it time and time again, how that has played out. And it, it really is a, an important part of that process for the parents, you know, they have to let go mm -hmm. and um, trust, trust as well. Yes. So the next one was, um, so someone is very interested in it. Um, she's struggling to persuade my husband to let me homeschool. It was oh. always my plan, but he's against it. So my son has ended up in school. I've done it my husband's way for a while now, but it's getting to the point where I can't carry on with something I don't believe in, but we are still in disagreement. His concerns are based around socializing and thinking he'll have no future. Not sure how I can convince him otherwise. Any advice on partners who just don't get it? I responded to her with my, my take, but I'd love to hear yours. Yeah, that's, I would love to hear your take as well. If we have time to go into that too. I have, I have a few thoughts on this and I want to be, I want to be 
um, just like acknowledge the fact that there's like a lot of circumstantial stuff in here. So what I'm saying may or may not actually work. Okay. Um, but there are a few things that I've seen convince parents. Mm-hmm. Um, and the biggest one I think is, is anecdotal evidence. Yeah. Um, like stories are very powerful. And if you're afraid that your kid is not going to be, the concerns were not being set up for life success. And what was the other one? Was it socialization? Um, socializing and having no future. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so like, honestly, I would like, if it were me, I would like get the buy-in to at least see the other side. Mm-hmm. And then I would like go meet homeschoolers, go talk to like real life homeschoolers, both like kids and adults, go look at stories of homeschoolers. Um, look at you know like look at what the the local activities are for homeschoolers look at some of the online schools like synthesis that are programs that homeschoolers can do where they meet other kids um like homeschoolers are everywhere there's the conservative estimates that i have seen are that there are three million in the u.s right now there may mm-hmm. be more than that because mm-hmm. um, it's kind of messy to aggregate all the state data yeah um but there are a lot of them and there are a lot of real life homeschool graduates out there in the world and you don't know who they are because they don't stand out like it's not like they look blue (laughs) and it's like oh my gosh that's one of those over there like somebody ruined them (laughs) yeah they don't have lights on their head like hee 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 here I am (laughs) yes it's you can't tell which Mm -hmm. is or if you can tell it's in a positive sense like I've had people say yeah I can tell that you were homeschooled but it's like a compliment that they can Mm -hmm. tell Mm -hmm. so it's like, I mean, I, I got some of my first jobs in part because I was homeschooled, partly because I could work during normal yeah. school hours, but also partly because my first bosses were like, we love homeschoolers mm. because they're awesome. They're better workers than the public school kids. So I would look at, I would, I would aggregate the evidence of like how, how these kids turn out. We have a ton of stuff like this on Rebel Educator. Um, like I tweet about this a bunch on my personal account because it's a really important piece of my story. Um, there are some really great books out there about homeschoolers. The first one that always comes to mind is, uh, don't tell me I can't by Cole Summers, which is an autobiography by an unschooler about his experience. By the way, Um, I just learned about that through your page and that story. Oh, I know. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So do you want to talk about that real quick? Do you mind? Yeah. I always sharing. Okay. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) We'll share about him. Yeah. Oh, bless his heart. So, so Cole Summers, uh, his real name was Kevin Cooper. He wrote under a pseudonym, and his real name wasn't released until he he passed away in an accident this summer. Um, but he was an unschooler. He lived out in a desert valley in Utah, and he was the child of two disabled parents and the younger brother of a of a disabled. He had a disabled older brother, so he was you know, very, he was a very precocious kid. He definitely Mm -hmm. was not like your average kid by any means, but he also had a really unique um, upbringing that allowed him to do all kinds of really remarkable things that, that most kids never get the chance to do, let alone know they can do. When he was 10, he bought and flipped a house uh, and he did all of the work on it himself because he wanted to learn how to do it. And even the people like his parents made him hire an electrician to do the electric work because they're like, there's no way you're learning wiring on YouTube and wiring a house. Mm-hmm. You're 10. 
uh, the electrician like taught him how to do all of the work. Mm-hmm. Um, he bought himself a tractor as I think his 11th birthday present. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> uh, he bought a ranch when he was 12 and he was like in the process of developing it and working on a, an agricultural plan. Um, cause he lived in a, in a valley with an aquifer that was being depleted for commercial hay farming. And he was working on, you know, like they're, they're going to run out of water in the aquifer and, the valley was going to become uninhabitable basically because it was going to turn into a dust bowl when people stopped cultivating it Mm. and there was going to be no water to drink. So he really wanted to, like it was home for him. He wanted to save the valley. So he was like really interested in environmentalism and like capitalism driven environmentalism. So he was working on this whole plan to build sustainable types of agriculture that weren't going to keep depleting the aquifer, but that were going to like reestablish soil stability and, and vegetation stability in the valley. And he wanted to buy up a bunch of the property and he had all these plans for, for this development work that he wanted to do um, at the age of 14 when he died. Um, and he had like, he had just like the most amazing self-directed homeschool experience. Mm. Um, when he was six, he wanted to know how come some people were rich and they weren't. And so he started watching Warren Buffett videos on YouTube. Oh my God. <laughs> and he was like, that was his education. He wanted to know about something. He know he knew more about tax strategy than I think just about anyone I've ever met. And I have an incredibly skilled accountant who's very knowledgeable. And like this kid may have actually known more mm. in terms of like things you can do for for like tax strategy, loopholes, research. Like he was such a nerd about it. Mm. Um he was it's amazing, it was, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. so like that book I, I think every parent and everyone who ever wants to be a parent needs to read that book because it's just it's such a paradigm shift in what's possible for kids but like yeah. he he was um he was talking to barry weiss about writing for her publication when i he know died. and I she know. she I know she published one of his articles unbelievable um, like he was getting i want to write for of- barry weiss <laughs> <laughs> Everybody wants to wait for Barry Weiss, and this 14-year-old kid did. I know. I and know. so, like, whenever somebody's like, well, your kid's not going to be properly socialized, it's like, well, technically, this kid lived in the middle of nowhere in the desert. Uh-huh. Like, he couldn't really – he didn't really go that many places. Yeah. But he was better socialized than a lot of adults in terms mm-hmm. of real-world outcomes. So I would I would look at things like that if you're trying to convince someone yeah. about homeschooling. Um, I would look at the options for socialization. I would look for the, um, I would look for the the case studies of what homeschoolers do when they graduate, um, yeah. and like what they go on to to create. And I'm I'm also happy to have a, a conversation about this at any point in time if like a DM at Rebel Educator is ever helpful to to talk in more detail about specifics. It's like very sweeping general. Suggestions. No, I, th- I think it's um, great because you're right. Stories do make a difference. And when people can start adding those stories together, it becomes a bigger picture because yeah. it is a matter of it's what if you, if this is, if public school or traditional school is all you know, then how are you going to have anything to bounce that around against? And so, yeah, I basically told her that sometimes for people, it's the devil, you know, and fear really does tend to drive decisions. And so, fear of the unknown fear of like my kid's gonna be weird all these you know stereotypes that get thrown onto things and um and and not I mean and it takes it takes an an initiative like Mm -hmm. if if you if you've just decided no and you shut yourself down well 
there's a different way to address that, then there would be somebody who is actually naturally curious and thinking, okay, well, you're, it's important to you. And I see why you feel that way. So let's dig into it a little bit more because the other piece of it, and this is what I told the mom as well, is that sometimes the the dads are worried that it's going to burn out the mom. So, Mm -hmm. you know, they might have that as a concern as well, that if all of that falls on you, you know, that there's this, this need or a concern to make sure that everybody's supported all the time. So, you know, that's, that's a great, great answer. Um, and then the last one, actually, we, we pretty much answered this one. Um, how did she love, what did she love about homeschooling? And then what, (laughs) without college, what has the job scene been like? So I think you really did kind of address that one already. Um, and then how to encourage high schoolers to explore their interest when trying to earn credits for their transcripts. What if my teen wants the option to attend college? And I really do think you addressed a lot of that as well, including the different types of learners mm-hmm. that there are. So you might have the kid who's naturally just going to be academic and eating up everything that comes their way and reading books. I was that kid. I read encyclopedias for fun. I practiced <laughs> my <laughs> practiced my uh, vocabulary and challenged myself by learning new words in the dictionary regularly. My brother nicknamed me Book. I mean... <laughs> I, yeah, I was like, that, that was, he was my oldest brother. He's six years older than me. And he, that, that it's, he still calls me that to this day. <laughs> That's my <laughs> nickname. Isn't that funny? Um, so yeah, no. And then you've got kids who are going to think, you know, sitting still and being lectured to or listening to lectures is not their thing. That doesn't mean that they're not capable. Um, so do you have anything else you want to add to that? Um, no, I don't I don't think so. I think the only thing that I would say and this is a take this with a grain of salt because there's definitely like some of my bias coming from just my personal experience in saying this, but I would always advocate for chasing the passions and the interests being more important than the the potential transcript credits for getting into college. Um there are always a million different routes to to get the college degree. Like it is a system that wants to churn through as many bodies as possible. Mm -hmm. So they like, there are a million ways to do it. If you don't have the transcript to get into a dream school, like go to a community college for a year or two, get a grades transfer. And like, there's always an option and you're going to save a bunch of money that way too. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's also strategic, but like there's, there are so many more options to being successful without a, college degree so many more paths than people think there are and unless you want to do something that's like a very calcified career track or it's a like you're legally required to have the credentialing it's usually really not all that important because once you have experience people don't really care about the education anymore they care about what it is you're actually capable of doing and what your track record's been at the other places that you worked and obviously there's tons of exceptions to this there are you know, lots of big corporations that just require the degree, but you know, which begs the question, like, well, do you, would there really be any fun to work at anyway? If that's mm-hmm. kind of the general operating procedure, which I'm, I'm a very free spirited person, obviously, but my answer has always been uh, no. Um, <laughs> I think, I think I'll pass on that anyway. I don't think that would make me happy in the slightest. Um, but yeah, I think like there are so many paths to being successful without college. And I really, really, truly think that most people do not need it. Mm-hmm. And the the inverse, like the risk of not being able to get into your dream school, your freshman year right out of high school, like, yeah, that's a risk you're running. But the inverse risk 
of like, what if you miss out on experiencing the things that would have made you happy because you get locked into this trajectory where like now you have a bunch of debt and you don't really want to leave your job because you've got to pay it off. And then like by the time you pay off your college debt, you've got a mortgage and you've got a really nice car and you're like, well, these things are nice to have. And I think I'm going to like wait to pay them off before I go like take the leap and do something I'm going to love. And then all of a sudden you're 65 and you're retiring and you're like, you know, I never got to do any of these things that I wanted to do. I I see that risk as being so much bigger. Mm-hmm. And yes, absolutely not like a, you know, you're 15 years old and you're either going to get the, the transcript credit or you're going to work on a project and that's like making or breaking the trajectory. I really hate thinking like that. I think you can always pivot. You can sure. always adjust. Um, yeah. You're not nearly as locked into a path as it often appears that you are. But at the same time, um, it is like precedent setting for how you make mm-hmm. decisions. And it's also... Like it's, it's scary to go out and do your own thing. And that's why a lot of people don't, but a lot of people are also missing out on really cool things they could be doing. And you just got to ask like, you know, which, which risk seems greater to me Mm -hmm. and there's no right answer to that, but it's an important question to look at head on and, and be honest with yourself about what you think about it. And so in my opinion, like I'm always the advocate for the alternative route, partly because there aren't a lot of voices advocating for it. So somebody's got to, <laughs> somebody's got to do that work. <laughs> I truly think that like in my, in my personal experience, it's always been the best piece of advice. Mm-hmm. So well, and just to know. look at life as a buffet and not, mm-hmm. you know, it's not just a one course meal. It is, there's so many amazing choices and they all go into the bucket of learning. They all mm-hmm. go into the bucket of your education. And one piece that I'm just going to throw this out there. I know for our college, for UNC colleges, um, you know, there's the minimum course requirements to enroll in college. And it goes back to that, not the need to, it goes back to, you don't have to do it in a certain time, but Mm -hmm. by the time you become 21 years old, it's like all that stuff prior doesn't even really matter. As long as you have a high school diploma or a GED, you know, it's like you can kind of enroll because you've had some life experiences or, um, you know, and, and then the other thing, which was a life, little life hack I learned when I was working with one of the private schools here, um, for, and then I, you know, shared this with my son was that, you know, like you said, going to community college for the first couple of years, because every single place you go pretty, for the most part, you're getting that basic stuff down. Mm-hmm. Like almost every university is going to say, okay, you have to do these courses for the first couple of years. And then you get into, you know, your, your primary studies <laughs> on top of that, there's such a, a, reduction of people by the time the junior year rolls around. So if you're going into college at as a junior because you did two years at a at a community school, you know, chances are you're going to have your pick because there's not a lot of people enrolling at their junior year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um and so there's lots of available options that are are unique and different and just thinking outside the box a little bit. So yeah, exactly. Uh, all right. Well we're, we're, we're closing out an hour and a half and uh, <laughs> I, I loved every bit of it. So I appreciate your time so much. And I'm looking forward, really, really forward to your podcast and getting that launched. When do you think that'll happen? Uh, the tentative launch date is mid to late February. We don't have an exact date yet. I will be sharing all over Twitter once we're getting ready to launch so, Okay, and in our Substack newsletter. So those are the two places to be following along if people who are listening want to be watching for that. Um, yes. but I'm, I'm super excited about it. It's going to, we're gonna have a lot of very fun conversations. I bet you will. Me too. And I'll be sure to share it on my end as well. And I appreciate um, that. 
Yeah, no problem. So thank you so much, Hannah. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad we finally got to do this. This has been such a great conversation. I'm, I've had a lot of fun. Thank you for joining us today. If you found this conversation helpful, please consider subscribing, sharing, or writing a review. It's a great way to support the podcast and connects people who are challenging and elevating how we view parenting and education in our modern society. Also, please mark your calendars for Thursday, March the 9th at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Cindy Gaddis, the author of The Right Side of Normal, Understanding and Honoring the Natural Learning Path for Right Brain Children, and veteran homeschooling mother of seven, joins me over on the Barefoot Playground to talk about how to support and understand your right brain creative learner. You can find details in the show notes about the Barefoot Playground and how to stay in touch with my guest today, Hannah Frankman of Rebel Educator. As always, stay curious, stay connected, and stay aware. Until next time.